Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 179 of Allied Strategies. My name is Tristan. Joining me, as always, is my friend Benjamin. Hello, hello. And joining us, as is increasingly common, as our new newest co-host uh, Sam flakes on us all the time, <laughs> is his better friend Matt. <laughs> hello, hello. Uh, Matt, welcome back to the show. Uh, of course, and Magic Pro League competitor Matthew Nass, um, multiple time returning guest now. How has your how has it been for you the past couple months since you've last been on the show? Uh, yeah, thanks. It, it's been great. I've really enjoyed. Uh streaming more and doing more magic content and kind of being pretty focused on magic. Yeah, you've been creating a, a large amount of, of content in the magic sphere. You've made a number of very popular YouTube videos of, uh, you know, discussion of, of changes, um, talking about the nexus of fate, ban or unban, which you absolutely correctly nailed exactly what was going to happen. Um, talking about the London Mulligan, which is something that we talked about a little bit last week, but is a very interesting topic. So congratulations on a, a job well done there. Thanks. Yeah, I, I've definitely enjoyed the like short videos just discussing something. It, it's, it's kind of a, a different style than I'm used to. And yeah, it's been fun. Mm-hmm. A much more modern way to perhaps discuss these things than say a, the outdated podcast format, one might say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so how was your, how's your competitive magic been? How was the last Mythic Championship for you? Uh, I went nine and seven, so kind of medium. I played blue green nexus, which I went five and five with. Uh, yeah, I felt like I had some rough draws, but also maybe it wasn't the best choice. I don't know. I, I think it. I think kind of all the decks did okay at the mythic championship. It wasn't clear that there was an obvious best choice. Like mono blue was probably the best, but yeah, I, I was pretty happy. Yeah, it looked to me like mono mono blue looked like a, a slightly good choice, and Sultai was getting beat up and. Uh, other than that, everything looks pretty looks pretty equal. Yeah, yeah. A lot of decks were right around the 50-50 mark. I think Nexus was slightly over, but yeah, everything was pretty close. Mm. Um, so that's been your most recent big tournament. The next one you have coming up is in three and a bit weeks, the Mythic Invitational, which yeah. uh, we're going to talk about as our main topic this week. We're going to discuss the entirety of that, but uh, in, a, in a brief bit, how, how excited are you for that event? Oh yeah, really excited. I mean, I think... It will be the highest stakes magic tournament I've ever played, and possibly the highest stakes magic tournament ever played. It's one million dollars divided among sixty-four players. Is the uh, is the prize pool? That is the breakdown. Yeah, not bad. Certainly not bad. Yeah, um, Benjamin, how about you? How excited are you to watch the Mythic Invitational? Oh, I am pumped to watch the Mythic Invitational. It is going to be great. Like I know a bunch of the competitors. Like I've got Matt to root for. Um, you know, like, it's just really fun to watch the, like, the very best in the game compete at, like, the highest level for an enormous amount of money. Um, I usually don't get to watch Pro Tours because I'm qualified for them. Humble brags. Um, <laughs> so every time Worlds comes around, which I'm never qualified for, uh, I always, like, love it and i like schedule a, like a world's watching party with my friends and it's just we have a great time and uh and i'm i'm looking forward to doing the same thing for this yeah you really channel all of your magic spectator energy into the the one big event per year that you aren't qualified for um all right well in other good news we have a, a new spoiled magic product that matt you actually helped spoil modern horizons uh, can you tell us a little bit about what this is? Yeah, so so uh, this got spoiled last week. I actually went out to Seattle to Watsi headquarters and uh, spoiled this with uh, an NFL player, actually, Cassius Marsh, which was pretty fun. Cool to see. You know, you don't you don't always see uh, pro football players uh, promoting magic, so that's it's always cool when stuff like that happens. And he's even on the 49ers, which is my favorite team. So that was pretty sweet. Uh, but yeah, the set is. A set that's going directly to modern, meaning that it won't be in standard. So even though it's a new set of cards, it won't add to the standard card pool. And that kind of allows uh, allows Watsi to make cards that would be too good for standard, but are really interesting in modern, actually. And so we got to spoil a couple of cards from that. But yeah, yeah overall, I think it's a really cool idea. And we'll discuss um, we'll discuss some of those cards in future segments of this show, but... Um, the the set is like partially reprints as well, right? It's it's some reprints and some straight yeah. to modern printing. 
Yeah, so it does include some reprints, but every reprint will be a card that is not currently legal in modern. So it'll be onslaught or older. Ah, okay. So it'll be it's it, everything is entering modern for the first time that's being printed in the set. Exactly. That is incredibly exciting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty cool what they're doing. I think my main my main question about it is like, is it going to be a draftable set? Like, is it going to be like yeah. previous? modern masters type sets where which i thought were really cool a lot of them um we you got access to this like wild and wacky limited format that used cards from across time but still was somehow coherent and cohesive and that those were always really fun i feel like it would be much harder to do with this kind of set but i guess they have actually do they have more cards to choose from which is bigger modern or not modern Uh, must be must be modern at this point right yeah i would guess so but it's also this this set has is a lot of uh, just new design cards, so that that's pretty different. It's not all reprints. Yeah, I guess that's true. But I mean, yeah. Do do you expect to open a booster pack and see like fifteen actual modern playable cards, or is it more like five to eight modern playable cards? I would guess the lower, but you know, it's yeah. It's, like with the, we, with we, the modern we have two cards sets, it was so far so. With yeah. the modern master sets, you'd like open a pack, and there'd be, uh, you know, often there wouldn't actually be any cards in there that were actually, you know, playable in modern. Right? They'd just be iconic cards from the history of modern, but or from the history of like the modern border. But um, there, yeah. you know, a lot of them were like commons and uncommons e type things. Yeah, I mean, it seems sweet. I hope there's, like, a, a GP or something or some incentive for me to play it because I think if there isn't, I tend not to get a lot of exposure to these sorts of things. But, you know, it, it seems like a, a pretty cool um, secondary product. I agree, yeah. I, I think I think it's uh, an exciting direction for them to move in. I think that the um, th- this seems kind of like the, the next iteration on the Masters sets. Um, and I, I like them continuing in that space, but maybe in a new direction because it was definitely... You know that there were. It's it's just it's nice to see something new from the masters thing because the like the iconic masters and uh, you know eternal masters and all, all those ones um, started to feel a little bit repetitive and samey and now this one's like a fresh new take on on the whole idea. Yeah, to, to me this is a lot more exciting because uh, one, it's actually changing what's legal in a format. Like you know, I don't worry that much about my collection, so for me, like. What's, what's legal in a format has way more impact on how I interact with Magic. And then two, this has a lot of new cards in it, whereas those sets are all like pulling just, just from reprints. So yeah, I'm, and this is the first time that Wizards has been able to like really design for modern, right? Like, yeah. They, they've never, they, they always design cards for standard, and like, you know, if they're printing something into modern, they have to be sure it doesn't do anything negative to standard, but like, right. now there's yeah. freedom for them to like do something that is powerful and like impact modern in a, in a, an important and healthy way, but that they were unable to ever do before because everything that made it to modern had to necessarily go through standard first. Right. Uh, yes. So an exciting time for sure. All right, let's move on to the meat of our show, but first a brief detour through thanking our good friends of the podcast over at patreon.com. Adam, Matt, Sean, Brett, Britton, Kyle, Caroline, Eric, Winchester, Zach, Sam, Duncan, and Will. Thank you for your continued support of this, uh, of this show. And our Patreon question of the week this week comes from good friend of the podcast, Brett, uh, who is interested in our reactions to the eBay sale of a 9.5 graded Alpha Black Lotus for 166000 United States dollars. Benjamin, what are your reactions to hearing of this? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's a lot of money, but it's not like an absurd amount of money. I mean, at this point, it's just history, right? Like, you're paying for a piece of gaming history. Um, and I feel like people have paid far more money for historical relics that are more important. So, I don't know. This this is not that surprising to me. Yeah, I think it's cool, though. I, I think it's it's cool to see this number. Because, like, we, we've seen 9.5s and stuff go for, uh, like, a third as much of this, right? As, uh, like, a few years ago, I believe. I have no idea. I have no context for how much a 9.5 yeah. Alpha Lotus. I, I believe Alpha cards in particular have been, like, skyrocketing skyrocketing in value recently yeah i i think this is evidence yeah. of that that trend continuing and it's uh it's definitely cool to see and like cool yeah. to see the you know the game that we currently play these these relics from its past being uh being so valuable and I yeah i do i do feel stupid for not investing more in cards every time i see something like this like 
investing in magic cards has been a good play basically throughout magic's history and i never do it and i always regret it yeah, yeah but you always have the benefit of hindsight like but at this point shouldn't i just be able to like given that it's been true every year for the past 25 years shouldn't i just pull the trigger yeah Only but the way these things work the past is, that... is predictive of the future and and one like the way this is this works is that like one year the worry is that they all they all become worth zero dollars right yeah 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 but I, I I agree I mean it, it certainly it certainly is a a nice and comforting thing if you're somebody who owns a lot of magic cards in a, a cardboard box somewhere uh, to keep yeah. seeing them become worth more and more for sure uh, I'm literally right. staring at the cardboard box that holds my cube right now <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cubes in particular are full of, I think, cards that are much more likely to appreciate than the average ones. Oh, that is certainly true. All right, let's move on to card of the week here. Matt, as our guest, and because you took Sam's spot, who is the the top spot on the card of the week order, uh, you have the honor of being our first card of the week person. What is your card of the week? My card of the week is Cabal Therapist. This is one of the cards that we spoiled from Modern Horizons. And uh, it's a 1-1 Menace for a black. It's it's an homage to Cabal Therapy. And then at the beginning of your pre-combat main phase, you may sacrifice a creature. When you do, choose a non-land card name. Then then target player reveals their hand and discards all cards with that name. So every... It's kind of like at the beginning of your upkeep, but... uh, the new way they do that is kind of like sagas where it's after you draw so that you have more information to make the decision. Um, and then, but yeah, then you basically sack a creature to cast the cabal therapy every turn. You didn't, yeah. you didn't give us the creature types. Oh, it's a horror. So it's good with like thing in the ice or against thing in the ice or what have you. I suppose that is a relevant interaction. Yes. Well, um, also just like generally in modern, like, if it was a human, for example, it's like suddenly becomes a lot better, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes, and I guess I guess it sounds like it could be. Um, I agree. I, I think this card, this card is very cool. Um, I am curious to see if it'll see play, given that it um, suffers from, you know, being a one run for one that needs to survive till your next turn to actually begin triggering this. Um, yeah. Although I suppose we've seen cards somewhat like this, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I think you get a little bit of a pass on that when you cost one mana, right? Like, yeah. When you if you cost like three and you had an ability like this, we just kind of dismiss it because like getting it lightning bolted or fatal pushed or whatever is just like too big of a blowout. But when you cost one one, like even if they do have the bolt or the push, it's kind of an even exchange. You're even on cards and even on mana, so it's not so bad. Yeah. Also, repeated Cabal Therapy is really powerful. Yeah, the second time around is a lot better than the first time around because you've seen their hand. That's true, although in, in order to get a second time around, you need to be playing this not on the first turn. Uh, so now we're talking about a third turn therapy, right? That is the second it, yeah. therapy. Yeah, I think even if you play this on turn one, you're probably not going to sack it. Right, yeah. You. I mean, And, th- and that's kind of where the menace comes in, right? Like, this thing is, is likely to... Like, if you're playing a deck that does... Uh, that is somewhat aggressive... Um, right. This is the kind of chip damage that might be relevant. One, one for one with menace is like much more of a creature than one one for one without it. Yeah. So, so like, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just gonna say. To be honest, I have no idea what sort of deck this would fit into right now. Like, yeah. But I feel like that's sort of part of the excitement about it. In that, um, like maybe they're just designing cards that will spawn new archetypes, or maybe there's gonna be other cards in the set that are good with this. Like, I mean, like you said, Tristan, it it does. You know the one-one menace, like it gets in there, it can be kind of aggressive. I don't really know what like a black aggressive-ish deck looks like in modern right now that has like a lot of creatures and token. Like, yeah, you're, you're yeah. looking for a deck with one ones and and stuff, right? You're looking for like, um, I don't know, uh, like uh, company, like some sort of company deck, maybe. Yeah, like, some I don't kind know, of, like but... doomed traveler deck, maybe. Yeah, I was um, thinking black-white tokens, like. Bitter Blossom, Blood Gas, Lingering Souls, those are the type of cards that, that I would be inclined to pair this with. Yeah, it's just sort of awkward that now Lightning Bolt is good against you, whereas Lightning Bolt wasn't good against you before. You right. Know, like, yeah. Yeah, this card know, is good with, with like things that are good to sacrifice and not that, and good at like countering removal, and this card's soft to removal, so like, how do you reconcile those yeah. two things? Yeah, that's certainly, certainly some tension with it. Perhaps the answer is uh, viling it in. 
on your opponent's end step or whatever. And then, yeah, that's cute. Yeah. All right. Uh, great card of the week. Benjamin, what is your card of the week? My card of the week is a card that's pretty good with Cabal Therapist, but probably unlikely to see play alongside it. <laughs> that card is Spawn of Mayhem. Spawn of Mayhem is a 4-4 four, for four, 4. It's a demon. It has Spectacle 3. So uh, if your opponent lost life this turn, you can cast it for, for 1 BB instead of 2 BB. And it's a 4-4 four, four Flying Trample. At the beginning of your upkeep, Spawn of Mayhem deals 1 damage to each player. Then if you have 10 or less life, put a plus almost 1 counter on Spawn of Mayhem. I think this card is 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 a potential sleeper in Standard right now. So like Standard, we've played it a lot. We've sort of seen how things have shaken out. You know, we, we've seen the winners and we've seen the losers. But I decided to pick this card as a card that I believe is is potentially very powerful, but just has yet to sort of find the right kind of deck. I think uh, the you want to put it in like a black aggressive deck, but right now the black aggressive decks maybe aren't so good. Uh, I wonder if you could try to fit it into a more mid-rangey shell somehow. Um, although you have to be careful of getting preyed on by Teferi and Nexus of Fate and stuff like that. But luckily, like, being black allows you to play cards that are naturally very strong against those strategies, like Duress and whatnot. Um, but I sort of think that Spawn of Mayhem, even though it's kind of just, like, a big, dumb creature or whatever, it I feel like it gets out of hand pretty quickly, uh, especially, like, sort of like Tempest Gin. Um, obviously, you don't you don't necessarily have Curious Obsession to Snowball as easily as the, the Tempest Gin decks do, but... I don't know, this is sort of my pick for maybe a sleeper card in Standard. It's a card that I expect to see a little more of um, as, you know, Standard continues to add new sets and, and some sets continue to rotate out. It's certainly aggressively costed. And, uh... Yeah, it's just huge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I've lost plenty of games, like, on Arena to this card before I, like, graduated to the, the, the good decks or whatever. Ah, yes, before, before you uh, stop playing against the players who played it. <laughs> which i guess is a, a good sign for the card question mark well yeah. it's, it's, it's the, always weird when you're like thank god i ranked up now i don't have to play against this busted card that was beating me over and over again yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> um we also know I, know I know well of your soft spot for like 2bb demons benjamin uh... i remember in uh what was it pittsburgh when uh we oh were the that. four five yeah, yeah four yeah, five yeah. The one with played, um, Delirium? Yeah. It's a point of pride that I played with Mindrack Demon before it was good. Yeah. <laughs> Hipster. <laughs> me too. Me too. It's a point of sadness for me, but... <laughs> as the, Well, I, I don't actually... Even, I'm not even convinced it was bad for that tournament. Um, but I, I am sad that I lost so badly with it. Yeah. All right. Um, my card of the week is Sarah the Benevolent. So this is another one from the upcoming Modern Horizons set. Uh, Sarah is two white white for a four loyalty legendary planeswalker. Uh, Sarah, of course. Plus two for creatures you control with flying. Get plus one plus one until end of turn. So uh, pretty low impact plus two, although that does bring her up to six loyalty, uh, which is a lot of loyalty for a four mana planeswalker after a plus. Uh, minus three for create a four four white angel creature token with flying and vigilance. So now we're talking. Uh, now we've got a we're looking at a, a four mana Sarah angel with that leaves behind a planeswalker. Um, and minus six for you get an emblem with, if you control a creature, damage that would reduce your life total to less than one reduces it to one instead. Uh, so worship, right, is the the card that you get on an emblem, uh, which is a, a very, very powerful card against certain strategies. And uh, if that effect is important to you, then Sarah can come down and plus two, and then the next turn she can alt. And uh, although she will go away at that point, uh, that's still a, a very powerful thing to do if you can do it in time against the combo decks that are weak to worship effects. Um, however, I imagine that that's not really the, the main case with this card. I think usually what's going to end up happening if, if this card is something that you can play is you'll, you'll play it, you'll get your 4-4, uh, and then you'll plus, and then you'll either make cash it in for another 4-4, or you'll plus again. Um, and I, I guess those things both sound reasonably good. I guess if your angel is surviving, though, you, you probably have won at that point. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm curious to see if this makes its way into modern, because, of course... Uh, Modern is the the main set that this one looks like it's potentially going to be playable in, uh, given that that's what it's being printed into. Uh, I certainly think that if this were printed into Standard, it would be very good there. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm curious to hear if if either of you are are high or low on this one for Modern. I'm low. 
You're low? Yeah, I don't think a 4-4 four, for four, 4 is really cutting it. It's a 4-4 for four, four, 4. I guess it, I mean I guess the problem is it leaves behind a, a one loyalty planeswalker that isn't threatening to do anything <laughs> next turn. Yeah, the the abilities on the one man on the the planeswalker that are left over are not great, I don't think. Um and you know, the cards like this have to compete with Jace the Mind Sculptor and Gideon Ally of Zendikar. Yeah, that, that's just, the thing about Gideon. I don't, I don't right? really see it. Uh, unless you're somehow like Unless you you're using the plus two like really well, I I don't really see this card being good. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm also pretty low. I think the best home for it is probably Bant Spirits because it's a deck that has Noble Hierarch to accelerate into it and can use the plus pretty well. Uh, but my guess would be it just doesn't see play. But it is worth noting that like Emblem of Worship is a lot better than Worship. That's true. Like, yeah. Like, a lot of the times people have, like, you know, you stall the game with worship, but then they find their one enchantment removal spell, kill it, and, and kill you. But if you have Emblem of Worship, they have to kill every single creature you have. They, they can't break the spell in any way. Like, emblems can't be interacted with. Yes. In my experience, worship isn't usually brought in against people that can remove it, though. Well, like, so, well sometimes it's brought in against people who have one, like, you know, Echoing Truth type card or whatever. Uh, sure, I mean, this card is better against well, Truth. Well, this is also a main deck card, so sometime, you know, like, the game might just play out that way. Yeah, yeah, I, the ult is good. The ult is good, don't get me wrong. Like, that's why I think your deck has to be good at the plus, if you want to be playing this card. Yeah, yeah, Band Spirit seems like it's good at the plus, it can keep a lot of creatures around for worship, and maybe counter their few spells that could interact with, turn you off of it, and then, like... The the Asera is decent there too, and it can accelerate it out. So, if anywhere, ban spirits, but probably nowhere. Seems like. Yeah, I I think you're right that the the four mana planeswalker spot um, is hotly contested, and there's very very little space for any of them. Uh, in yeah, the yeah. I guess black, black white tokens is the other one, right? Lingering souls, bitter blossom, spectral procession are all yeah. great great with the plus. That's yeah. true. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so she does have. Like, yeah. If you play her in plus her, that is a lot of loyalty you're leaving behind as well. Yeah. So Cabal Therapist and Sarah just both slot right into black white tokens. You heard it here <laughs> first. Black white tokens busted in modern. I mean, I don't know for a fact that JC Tao worked on this product, but you know, <laughs> if you think the black white tokens is getting a boost, I bet it was him. Yeah. There you go. All right. So moving on now into our main topic, which is the Mythic Invitational. Um, let's start off by discussing what the format of the Mythic Invitational is. So, the Mythic Invitational is a standard tournament. Um, the MPL is all competing as our... So, it's, it's, it's a 64-player tournament, uh, of which every every member of the... Or 31 members of the 32 MPL players uh, are competing, as are the top eight of the last season of Magic Arena uh, constructed. Uh, and then there are some invitees as well to bring up the number... To 64. Now, Matt, you are one of the competitors for the Invitational. Can you tell us about what the actual standard format is that we're going to see here uh, at play? So, uh, yeah, the format's unlike anything we've really seen before. First of all, it's, it's best of one. So that's pretty... Or it's, it's best of three games, but there's no sideboarding. So it's kind of... The individual games are like best of one style. And then the way it works is every competitor is bringing two, diff- two decks. They don't actually have to be different. There's no restrictions on how similar or different the two decks you bring can be. One gets assigned the title deck A, one gets assigned the title deck B. In game one, you play your deck A. In game two, you play your deck B. And then in game three, you get to choose which one you want to play. Yeah, and this is going to be played on Magic Arena, right? Yes. So it's it's we're all going to be at PAX East. It's a live tournament, but it's going to be played on Magic Arena. So we're just all going to be sitting at computers in like the... The magic booth in true esports style. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's an exciting format with this restriction or with with no restrictions on the decks you submit. Uh, do you see there being a strong incentive to submit two different decks? Uh, since in that game three you can choose a deck, or do you think it's best to just play the best deck twice? Yeah, I'm not sure. So like, it, it's it, it kind of depends on how balanced the decks are. If you have a deck that you think is way better than the other ones you should just double up on it and play it. Because, for example, let's say your deck is... Let's say I have a deck that is... Let's say I think most people are going to run Mono Red and Esper as their two decks. If I have a deck that's 60% against Mono Red and 45% against Esper, 
uh, even in this best of three format, that's a pretty good overall win percentage. Like I'll win 60% against the... Also, most of the time I'll beat the mono red deck, and then I'll have two cracks at the Esper deck at 45%, and I'll probably win one of those. I'm not... Okay, I don't think it's quite as simple as you're making it out to be. I think it really depends on the actual win percentages, because... Yeah, absolutely. My, my intuition from when you said that is that that deck would be a poor choice. Why is that, Benjamin? Well, you... You sort of just took for granted your 60% deck, and then you're like, oh, and I have two shots at the 45%, and that'll probably pan out. But, like, that's not... Well, like, I think I think overall that'll lead you to around fifty-fifty. Yeah, I, okay, yeah. Not, a, not okay, not a horrible choice, but I don't I don't believe sure, that sure. is like better than medium. Right. Yeah. Whereas if you have access to um, if you have access to a like a great deck against some of the format, um, and like a, a Jund style, you know, forty-eight percent, fifty percent deck, right? Like you can you'll get in the dark the great deck against somebody and then you can play the Jun deck in game three and not be vulnerable to being uh like ha- you know being played a- being pl- playing into a bad matchup right yeah um certainly is is an interesting format and we'll have to see what people end up doing because of course this is the first time we've ever seen this duo standard format so uh i expect that we'll have many good players come up with different answers as to what the best choice is uh with it yeah, you can also play two of the same archetype without playing two of the same 60, right? Like, right. you can play Esper Tune to beat Mono Red and Esper Tune for the Mirror, or something like that. So, that that's also an option. There's a lot of different options, and this is completely unexplored, so I've started to explore it a little bit. But I, I, I've mostly right now but just been trying to figure out what decks are good in Best of One. And what what does the format as a whole look like? And then as we get closer to the deathless submission date, I'll, I'll start to focus in on how how this duo standard format affects things. Yeah, I feel like that could probably be solved by just like sitting down and like writing out down like a game theory matrix and like like okay, I don't believe a lot of problems in real life can be actually solved in this manner, but I do sort of feel like this duo standard con- conundrum can actually be solved by just like sitting down and applying some game theory and like writing out percentages and stuff like that just like solving for the equilibrium yeah one of the tricky parts is you know you have to input what you think your matchup win percentages are and those are always going to be to a degree made up right like you're you're going to estimate those but you have to make a decision in in uncertainty but you had to do that anyway yeah absolutely when you pick a single deck to play it's not like you know all the matchup percentages perfectly no it's pretty similar all right, so let's let's talk a little bit about then the best of one format and the the pressures that that puts on you. And obviously, you know, both of you have been playing quite a bit of best of one on Magic Arena. Um, what are some differences in what's good in best of one versus best of three constructed? Yeah, so I think to a degree, it's a lot of the similar decks. Like Esper is still one of the best decks. It was one of the best in best of three. It's one of the best in best of one. Mono Red is probably the deck that gains the most stock because almost every deck can improve against mono red by just cutting its most expensive cards and then just adding cheap cards. Re- so kind of regardless of what deck you're playing or what your sideboard looks like, you have a pretty simple way to improve against them. The other thing is best of one also has some kind of different rules for how you draw your opening hand that make your, your draws a little better on average. And that also benefits mono red. Right. Yeah. The, the whole thing with, um, like drawing two starting hands and choosing the one closest to your um, your deck's land ratio, right? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, you just named the two decks that I would assume benefit the most from no one being able to sideboard. Yeah, which is the creatureless. Deck that, the deck that has no creatures, and then the deck that has all cheap cards. Yep, yep, for sure. So Mono White is also in the all cheap cards variety, and then the decks that kind of lose stock are a deck like Sultai, where you you have like a mix of removal and creatures, but like a lot of your removal is dead against control, and a lot of your creatures are like uh, like Wild Growth Walker is pretty uh, mediocre against control. But then you also have cards like Vivian that are really bad against aggro, and so Sultai is one of those decks that gets a lot better with sideboarding. A lot of its draws look kind of the same, so that the smoothing thing doesn't help that much. Yeah, Sultai is the biggest loser, I would say. Yeah, I. I... 
okay, I'm already biased against Sultai and Black Green and stuff because I just don't like those decks, but there's no <laughs> way in heck that I would play Sultai at the Mythic Invitational. There's no way I would play it in best of one. Yeah, you, you're so one thing that happens in, in these formats is that like you you just have so much pressure on you to beat both Mono Red and Esper with the same deck. And with this kind of mid rangey strategy, you just don't have very many cards that are good against both decks. Um, right, you're just going to have to hope to draw the right cards in the right matchups. Ooh. Yeah, and hoping to draw the right half of your deck, like you, you, especially since you're losing all this upside of like having a versatile sideboard, um, which is like a huge selling point of decks like Sultai historically. Yeah, um, yeah. I know, I know a deck which I believe is good against Esper and Mono Red. I'm not sure how good it is against Mono Red, actually. But what deck is that, Benjamin? <laughs> oh, it, it's the old brunch special, you know. Ah, just a little, little bit, a little bit of black, a little bit of red, you know, mix them all together. You get brunch. Yes, you you do get brunch, although you don't get it by mixing together black and red. You get it by a very convoluted naming chain, as far as I understand. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't really make sense. Because mm. <laughs> among other things, it was originally to name a deck that didn't contain black, so... Yeah. Well, it was it was to name the deck Big Red, and you see Big Red is a cinnamon chew, and brunch rhymes with cinnamon toast crunch. Of course. See, I thought it was because black red, like BR is black red, right? And so brunch is, starts with BR. Yeah, no, yeah. that's 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 what you can you can assume it means now. Now it's like black red crunch, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? Crunch yeah. your opponents. Mm-hmm. I also like Paulo's version that brunch is the meal you'll be eating on Saturday if you play this deck in a pro tour. But... <laughs> <laughs> or how did you do with with Nexus five five? Yeah, well, I, I was playing on Saturday, so yeah, that's true. I wasn't, but I wasn't playing brunch, and I, w- I sort of wish yeah. I was. No, Ben, you yeah. you did get to play on Saturday. You just had to play a different tournament. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> that's you, true. you actually went undefeated on the Saturday, right? Yeah. Did. Um, yeah. All right. So re- returning us back to our main topic, kicking and screaming, as as the case may be. Um, one other thing that Best of One does is that you, you know, in addition to like choosing which archetype you play, within each archetype there are a bunch of different like card choices that you can make differently in Best of One versus Best of Three. There are like sideboard cards that you could consider adding a copy or two to your main deck. Um, there's increased value on like card selection effects and like silver bullet e packages. Um, are any of these? Are, are there any kind of specific examples of this that you're looking at doing uh, for Best of One in Standard right now? Yeah, I mean, a big a big thing is just the metagame. So Mono Red is really popular, and it's not that popular in Best of Three. So, like, uh, Life Gain, Fungal Infection, cards like that are, are going to have their stock rise. Uh, Sultai isn't as popular, so you don't need as much of that kind of grindy... You want, you want stuff for Esper, but, you know, if there's specific cards that are good against Sultai, you don't need as much of those. Yeah, I guess... Uh, those, like, Hostage really... Taker type cards... Yeah, Hostage Taker is a good example. You don't really need your removal spells to kill Thief of Sanity also, right? Because yeah, although a lot of your removal spells are just going to be stuff that kills small things anyway. Well, so you re- like specifically yeah. moment or like Fungal Infection versus Moment of Craving. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. In, in normal standard, people usually play Moment of Craving um, because you know that's a card that if you're worried about Thief of Sanity, you can keep like a small number of copies in your deck or whatever, and it kills that card. Fungal yeah. Infection does not do that at all, but is much more effective against cheap creature strategies. Uh, but yeah. with the best of one, you just don't have to worry about your opponent sideboarding in Thief of Sanity, because it's not a thing, so you can just yeah all Fungal Infections. Yeah, that, that is definitely a thing you can do. The other thing is, removal that kills big guys is uh, a little less important, like cast down type stuff, because uh, the, the biggest creature decks are Mono Red and Mono White. You know, you'll, you'll run into some, like green red monsters or stuff like that so you don't want you don't want to have none but those things the 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 removal like cast down Braska's contempt the bigger removal has definitely lost some stock so i also saw owen play a single copy of fiery well actually i don't know how many copies but at least one copy of fiery cannonade in his is it phoenix deck uh, that he was playing best of one with uh, I think that deck is sort of unique in the fact that you just have a lot of filtering, like tormenting voice and, and radical idea and stuff like that. So you can afford to play these like very niche cards that are dead in other matchups. But I think that's actually pretty smart if you're going to be playing that deck in best of one. 
Like, um, just like when you do draw the fiery cannonade and it lines up well against what your opponent is doing, it's just so absurdly good. That deck is like pretty vulnerable to opponents going wide. So I think like a modification like that is really smart, actually. Yeah, yeah. The the like silver bullets that are just kind of like the ace of spades in a certain matchup is definitely something that is appealing in in best of one because you don't have access to your sideboard. Then you have to figure out, you know, what am I going to do if I draw this card in the wrong matchup? And yeah, Phoenix is a perfect example of a deck that can deal with that. Other blue control decks can play Chemister's Insight. Uh, other than that, you might just have to be stuck with it, and maybe it is a mulligan in some matchups, but maybe it's worth it for, for the free wins it provides you in the matchups where it is good. Yeah, it does kind of increase the stock of those like card selection-type effects, um, you know, like Chemister's Insight and uh, like Tormenting Voice and the decks that can make use of those. Um, the, that that really reminds me of, like, uh, do you guys remember the limited format where in Case and Ice was uh, like a card that Owen was always advocating to main deck? Which was a, a very it was a card that affected like only two of the five colors, um, but blue, the color it was in, had like a couple of looting effects at common. And yeah, uh, that, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I, it reminds me of, of like it, it reminds me of the, those sorts of incentives where you, you kind of want to create a deck that has a few ways to loot and then has a couple of things that like sometimes you want and sometimes you really really don't want. Um, one other thing that's uh, worth noting about Duo Standard is that. There are there are actually sideboards allowed, right? You're allowed to submit a 15 card sideboard, uh, and then you're allowed to access it with cards like Masterminds Acquisition. Um, so one thing that's true is if you are playing a Masterminds Acquisition deck, uh, you get a full 15 card wishboard rather than having to have cards in there that are actually sideboardable. Do you think that this at all raises the stock of that kind of strategy, uh, or is that yeah, just too clunky? It, it definitely raises it some. It might be that acquisition is still too clunky to to be worth it, but. It has to make it better because <laughs> right now it's pretty annoying to to play a wishboard. You're, you're costing yourself sideboard slots, and, and the acquisition decks in particular are generally kind of mid rangey or controlly, so their sideboard slots are particularly valuable. All right, let's move on to discussing the the tournament itself and its structure. Um, so one thing that's true about this tournament that is not has not been true about Magic tournaments very much in the past is that this one is double elimination rather than Swiss. Um, does this have any kind of bearing on your thinking at all or, or n- none whatsoever i believe there might be some tournament formats for which this is not true but for almost every tournament format i've played my main focus has been picking the deck that has the highest match win rate uh for any yeah for any given match and i think that's still true of this one so uh, i don't think that'll alter my, my strategy too much yeah, I, I don't anticipate it doing that either, although I, I, I will say that I, I think double elimination is a great direction to move um, Magic tournaments in. I think that m- moving to like triple elimination for, for big tournaments, that kind of stuff, would be, would be an exciting place uh, to go. Um, I mean, and, they're basically triple elimination, right? You're talking about Grand Priest? Yeah, they're basically triple elimination, but they're not actually triple elimination. I yeah, I, I think a lot of people enjoy playing when they have three losses. Yeah, I, I'm going to disagree with you here. For paper tournaments, I think you should just have people play as much... Ma- like, people are just excited to play on day two, you know? Like, all right, all right, yeah. Maybe, when they get their fine, sixth fine. Yeah, loss. but I, I think this is a great format for, for small tournaments, and I'm, I'm excited yes. to give it a try. Now, one thing that is true about this tournament is that there's kind of a, a, a vast difference in the name recognition and, like, the how, the, the magic finishes that... Uh, like, the difference between the the 31 MPL players and the resumes that the average resume of those and the non MPL players uh, and their average resumes. There are certainly some, there are some very, very strong players uh, that are qualified as invitees to this tournament. Um, Our last mythic champion, for instance, Autumn Burchett, um, as well as some of the players in the top eight of the magic arena leaderboard, like Andre Strasky um, are very well-known players who I, I would not expect to, you know, who, who, uh, who I wouldn't put much below any any member of the MPL uh, in terms of equity, but there are also a bunch of names that are, are less familiar in the invitees. It's definitely uh, an interesting group. There's, as you said, there there's a, in the invitees there's a pretty wide range, but there are a lot of players who you know are a threat to win any tournament. There's at least two Hall of Famers, I believe exactly two: Louis Scott Vargas and Gabriel Nassif. It's funny there were actually two MPL players and two non-MPL invitees in the top eight of the Mythic Championship. There was Ottoman Luis for the invitees, 
and Reed and Marcio for the MPL players. So half the top eight of the last Mythic Championship was comprised of people in the Mythic Invitational. Um, to me, the like X factor is is the top eight from the arena ladder last season because those players, some of them are like Andre Strosky, where we know who they are, we know roughly how good they are. But some of them are people, I know at least one of the players who made it via that method has never played a Grand Prix or Pro Tour before, which to me is like mind boggling because so many of my friends who have, you know, been platinum, played in many a, a Pro Tour and Grand Prix were trying to make top eight on the arena ladder and didn't. So for someone who's never played a Grand Prix or Pro Tour to be able to do that is quite an achievement. And I'm really curious to, to see them play. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of people have done really well from Magic Online. Like Josh Utter Layton came from playing exclusively on Magic Online, Brad Nelson, even Luis Scott Vargas a while ago. So they could be absolutely insane Hall of Fame level for all I know. And particularly given the fact that these are the only eight players who whose accomplishments are in the format that actually the tournament's in, right? Best of one. Um, yeah, you can ladder on best of three or best of one. That's so, true, although... But I, it's their choice. I, I, okay, so I, I guess they... But I, I imagine at least some of them were, were best of oh, one yeah. ladderers. And, uh, For sure. Whereas For sure. all of the resume of the MPL comes from best of three. Um, and the invitees as well, for the most part. Um, so it's, it's definitely going to be exciting to see if that translates into this, you know, if... if the fact that this is an arena tournament uh, and we have this top eight that have qualified from the arena metagame uh, ends up being something that we, you know, they overperform and uh, and really hold their own against the MPL or not. Um, definitely, it, it feels like the MPL are, are, are like, it, it's it's hugely favored, in my opinion, that, that an MPL member wins this tournament. And I, I would be, it would be so exciting if it was close and if, uh, if an invitee or, or a member from Magic Arena really gave them a run for their money. Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't think the top eight is that disfavored. Like, I would I would put the odds that a, a a top eight arena player wins at roughly like a fifth of the odds that an MPL player wins. You're talking about for any given MPL player versus any given top eight, or you're saying I'm saying that so so the benchmark should be against a quarter, right? Because there are four times as many right 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 MPL players as there are top eight um, okay. achievers, and I'm saying that the odds that any top eight achiever wins is about one that's about one-fifth the odds that any okay so you're saying they're just a hair worse than than mpl people yeah they have 80 percent of of the equity of an average mpl player or something that that would be my assumption and certainly like luis nasif and autumn can't be that far below no no those are those are particular people from the invite right right Right. yeah yeah, i I would say that invitees as a pool are probably much worse than one-fifth of the odds of an mpl player winning Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I, I think that the, there are some specific invitees that are very strong, but for the most part, I, I would expect them to. Um, I, I would expect most invitees to have to have a really good tournament to do well in this tur- in this tournament. Whereas, um, I mean, I guess anybody would, anybody's going to have to have a good tournament, but um, yeah, I, I think it, the MPL has definitely got the most equity in this. Um, and there's some incentive to do well in this MPL, right? There's there's good reasons to be a high ranked MPL player. Um, so it's, it's well, yeah. First of all, the the first prize is two hundred fifty thousand dollars, so that's, that's a pretty strong incentive. incentive. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we don't know exactly how things work out, but yeah, they're b- doing well in this. For people who are not in the NPL, could qualify them for. Uh, oh uh, no, that's that's not true. I don't believe that's true. I believe that yeah, is not explicitly true. not true. It's it's the it's the PT. It's yeah. it's. It's uh, the P- last PT winners from the last two Pro Tours. Yeah, the the Invitational does not award Mythic points, and yeah. I believe is not structured, is yeah. not supposed to help qualify you for other tournaments. It is uh, yeah. Invitational. Yeah. So the, the only real equity that anybody gets then is if, is, is if you win this thing, you are like, well, you're also you're likely to get invited to future Invitational style tournaments, right? If you're the yeah, the previous so, Invitational yeah. winner, so brand brand equity and tournament equity. Okay, yeah. so it's not actually as much of a uh, a high stakes system- systemic tournament like Worlds has been in the past, right? That's cool. That's cool. I, I like the move away from that. I like the move towards um, yeah. Mythic well, Championships being the ones where the points come from. Yeah. yeah, it's because it's an invitational, right? Like the Worlds equivalent will probably award myth. Well, maybe it won't. I don't know. 
But I would be fine with the Worlds Tournament awarding Mythic points. Like Yeah, and the Arena Mythic Championships will award Mythic points. Yeah. Okay. Because those are... Yeah. Well, they're, regardless... They're, they're using a merit-based system to invite people. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say that. I hesitated to use the phrase merit-based because I do believe that invite getting invited to the Invitational is also merit-based. Just on Yeah, a well, a quantitative as opposed to qualitative. A different scale of merit, but I do believe that Invitationals should exist outside of existing tournament structures, and I do believe that having Invitationals is a good thing. Like, I'm happy that this is happening. I'm happy that Wizards of the Coast invited people that they believe will help their branding. Like, I think all of these are smart and good. Yeah. Uh, but I also believe that the invitational should not be plugged into the structure of competitive play, which it isn't. So, basically, right, so like good a, choices all around, basically. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, it's going to be really exciting to see Magic Arena like on this on the stage for the first time uh, as an, an esport tournament. You know, um, with the full force of you know the new Wizards apparatus, I guess, um, behind their their arena esports. I think it's going to be. Uh, it's really going to be indicative of, of you know the future of, of Magic Esports, uh, how this tournament goes. So uh, it, this is this is going to be a good one to not miss, and I, I'm looking forward to hopefully watching it with my friend Benjamin at, at one of his classic watch parties for this style of event. Let's be honest, Tristan, you're going to be asleep. What? I would never. I, I made it to the last World One, didn't I? I think I did. Um, I'm not sure actually. Uh, well, okay. we'll have to go back and check the tape. We'll we'll check the yeah check the tapes. Um, I'm pretty sure I've been to, I, I'm pretty sure I've been to your apartment like three times in the past three years, and it's been worlds every every time. Nice, yeah. Um, which is about the maximum amount of times per year that I, I would like to visit. Uh, for the record, anyways, that's uh, that's our main topic this week: the discussion of the magic or of the mythic invitational. Does anybody have any kind of final things that I didn't get to cover, or any questions that I didn't correctly prompt uh, the answer to uh, that you'd like to discuss for this tournament? Um, going once, going twice. Sold. Sold. All right, let's uh, let's get out of here then with an end story from our special guest. Again, thanks so much for being on the show, by the way, uh, Matt. And we hope to have you again on soon, and I'm sure we will because Sam uh, is always has you know too many things going on for us. So yeah, yeah, he is pretty busy, and yeah, it was fun to be on. Thanks, thanks for having me. What All is, right, uh, your story here, yeah. So. Uh... This is a uh, self-deprecating story that, uh, and Ben White's was a part of this story, so uh, I'm sure he'll interject at various points. But uh, so uh, when, when we were doing uh, testing for the Mythic Championship, we were in Cleveland, and we weren't actually super near a lot of good restaurants, even though Cleveland actually has pretty good food. And so we were looking for uh, like breakfast or brunch one day uh, before we the got got. The first day, yeah, so we didn't really know the lay of the land too well. Uh, and this is before we were going to start battling. So, uh, you know... I, I had I had red-eyed in the morning and hadn't slept, just FYI. So I'd been awake for, you know, 24 hours or whatever. Wow, yeah, I, I did not remember that, but that is a lot of being awake. So uh, we were looking for somewhere to eat, and as one of the... Like, there were a lot of foreign players there and stuff like that, so... I kind of had the responsibility of finding us a place. So I turned on my Yelp, and there wasn't a lot nearby. There was, like, some diners and stuff, but they had, like, two or two and a half stars. And then I found a place, like, 0.4 miles away. Also, it's very cold, so we didn't want to go very far. So 0.4 miles away, four stars on Yelp, and it's, like, something-something market, which sounds pretty good to me. Sounds like just, you know, going to have solid breakfast food, that sort of thing. So I'm like, okay, well, let's let's go to this four-star market. So I get to rally the troops. We head outside. It's very cold. We're walking, and, you know, as predictably, by the time we're, like, most of the way there, uh, people start to complain, and they're like, oh, my God, this is so far. We've already been 0.3 miles. This is unbearable, blah, 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 blah. And we pass by a diner, and everyone's like, oh, let's just go to the diner. That, that, that seems fine. And I'm like, look, I looked on Yelp. This diner, almost everything was super low rated. This diner probably had like two and a half stars or something like that, two stars. Let's just go to the four-star market. At this point, we're one or two blocks away. So people are like, fine, we can, we can go. So we walk the one or two blocks to where the market's supposed to be. But 
there's no market there. All there is is like a random hotel. I think it's like a Hilton or a Marriott or something. It was and that it was a Hilton. <laughs> okay. Good. And then Good yeah, very important to the story. So I'm like, okay, well, is it the hotel restaurant? Let's just go inside and check it out, I guess. So we go inside, and there, and we see something called Something Something Market, but it's not the hotel restaurant. It's just like the convenience store. <laughs> it's the literal snack bar that they yeah. put in the lobby of hotels that is like yeah. $4 candy bars and $4 Yeah, it's like the, the 7-Eleven style thing, but way overpriced. And I'm like, how the hell did this have four stars? So then I look on my phone, and it had one review, four stars. <laughs> so it was definitely uh, my fault. Uh, and obviously, we just walked back to where that diner was. So we walked, like, the extra two blocks for nothing, which apparently to some of our teammates was a big deal. And then uh, the diner was, in fact, worthy of the 2.5 star rating. It, it was pretty medium. <sighs> That's right. I just don't understand how you can look up a place on Yelp and not realize that it's just the snack, the the convenience store <laughs> of a hotel. Well, I didn't look at the pictures, and I saw four stars for the reviews, and and I heard the word market, and that's the that yeah, good naming. If, if that, yeah. that's why you name your um your little store market, right? Yeah, if it had been named, you know, Seven Eleven convenience store or something, I would have known not to go there. But market sounded pretty great. Ah. That's going to be all for us this week, though. We will unite again next week, however, for more Allied Strategies. Tristan, have I ever told you the story of the time that Sam bet me that Matt Nass could not figure out which way was north? No. <laughs> oh, so, it was at four to one, right, or three to so one? So Sam, Sam gave me five to one odds, <laughs> which you'll note is is better odds than Matt just picking a direction at random. So Sam believed that Matt trying to pick a di- the direction that is north would make him less likely to find the correct answer than just picking a literal random direction. Well, it depends on how how generously you're grading north, right? Like if you're if you're cutting it into ninety degree slices, then yeah. I, I believe where I was pointing had to be classified as a direction. Okay. Yeah. It, it, you, you can't, like, point northwest or whatever. It was going to be one of the... You, you, we'd round it to one of the four closest cardinal directions. I see. Okay, so yeah, 90 degrees. So Sam things. gave me five to one odds, so obviously I took him up on it, and then obviously Matt pointed in a direction that wasn't north, so I had to pay. <laughs> I, I, just, I, just, I think I overheard it, and I just decided to point at random, but I don't remember for sure. Yeah, but pointing at random is still a good deal for Benjamin, so... Yeah, yeah, so I was fine You were helping, yeah. 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 Anyway, this is a lesson of why Matt Nash should not be allowed to direct people to places. <laughs> well, if I, like, I directed correctly to the place. That I was the thing. Yeah, you did. <laughs>